Hello and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Northern Lights Teaching School Hub podcast, where we discuss all areas of classroom teaching, school leadership and professional development for teachers and leaders at every stage of their career, with a range of guests from schools across our region and beyond. I'm your host, John Tate, so let's find out what we've got lined up for you in today's episode. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing how we can rethink staff wellbeing. So I'm delighted to say that alongside me on today's show, we have Kelly Hannigan. Kelly is a mental health and wellbeing consultant and has spent a professional career passionately putting wellbeing at the heart of education by focusing on enhancing the life and learning experience of the people within it. She's a trailblazer within the Wellbeing Lead Network for supporting pastoral teams and has been recognised by the DfE, NCB, the Anna Freud Centre and the Education Support Partnership as a lead influencer of mental health and wellbeing in education. Kelly is an active speaker and writer about wellbeing and is passionate about creating the conditions under which teachers, pupils and families can flourish. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Kelly. It's fantastic to have you with us today, talking about something so important to teachers and leaders at all levels, not only in our region, but across the country as well. Hi, John. It's really great to be here with you this morning. Fantastic. Right. Well, let's get into this. And I'm sure there will be, whether people are listening who are teachers, teaching assistants, uh, middle leaders, senior leaders, head teachers, trustees, irrespective of, of, of what level, age and stage people are at, I'm sure that everyone will be able to get some golden nuggets from you today. From you today. So um, let's start by saying that I know that listeners will be well aware of the term staff wellbeing and the importance that our profession is placing upon it at the moment. But can you begin by breaking this down a little bit, Kelly, and talking to our listeners about what wellbeing means to you rather than just as a buzzword that's thrown around, together with some of the reasons why it's such a high priority in our profession at the moment? Yeah, definitely. Wellbeing, as you say, is certainly a buzzword and it's been bounded around over the last few years. Um, Talk about wellbeing, I believe, has become a bit like white noise. So we hear the chatter around it, but are we really noticing or taking action? So when we think about the term wellbeing, it refers to our overall state of health, happiness and fulfilment. And it often encompasses various aspects of both our personal and our professional life. Um, An educator's well-being, I believe, has a direct impact on their own job satisfaction, effectiveness in the classroom and on student outcomes. So well-being for me is about being able to flourish within life's adversities. So being able to overcome struggle. Yeah, it's interesting that because, uh, you know, depending on what we think about adversities, we all face struggles at time to time, whether that's just being tired towards the end of a, of a term, whether it's something happening in your, in, in your family life. And I think it is really important to to, to really prioritise that, isn't it, Kelly, in terms of because if 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 we can't flourish and it's interesting, I did a podcast recently with, with, with Joe Warner from the, the Diocese of Newcastle and Durham. And actually, if we can't flourish as adults, then how are we going to expect our kids to flourish? I, I presume that's, that, that's the same, isn't it? Yeah, we're seeing the increased needs um, of negative uh, well-being being impacted uh, for educators, but we must be mindful there's an ever-increasing need of children and young people experiencing mental health challenge. I really do believe that educators need to live well in order to teach well. I think that's a priority. And I think the things that are impacting um, educators' well-being are increased workload, so working longer hours, all of those administrative tasks, planning, marking and so on, but also the pressure of standardised testing and accountability measures, a lack of funding and resources, so the teaching materials and the classroom support 
that has an impact on job satisfaction and well-being um, and managing the increased student mental health needs that often is seen in their behaviour symptoms. Um, we've seen a huge increase of teacher absence and recruitment and retention. Many educators are considering leaving the, the profession altogether. And we must be mindful as well that some educators have never left education. Mm. So they've gone to school, um, further education, university, uh, and then become um, young teachers. So their experience of the working world has always been set within an educational setting. Um, I always say it'd be really great if we could do a job swap, you know, mm -hmm. a bit like wife swap, but you did a job swap with someone working in a completely different profession and they worked in your profession, just so we can see both sides of the coin in terms of um, workplace stress. And then we can couple the balance between, as educators, what can we control and change ourselves? What can we control and change with help? But also let go of the things that we can't control and change because those are the things that are really um, affecting mental health and well-being of educators. Absolutely, and I think that that's really interesting to think about all those different different things um, and 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 what we can do ourselves and what as leaders we can do. So you've outlined some of the issues, and you, you start to touch on some of the things that actually that, that are happening in school that are actually kind of creating those those things. So thinking about schools then, and thinking about what do you think needs to change in schools? Um, you, you've, you've mentioned some of the things there about standardized testing and and, and, that, and that type of support. What do you think we can change in schools that will make a significant difference? And more specifically, what can any leaders who are listening to this, whether that's a team leader, a phase leader, a department leader, head of year, whether it's a senior leader, a head teacher, trusted, what what based on their roles can they start to change and to, to start to make that difference so that we don't get in that cycle of thinking, well, well, this is what we do with schools though. Well, you know, so what are the things we need to change and how can we start to do that? I think we need to get curious around well-being and whose responsibility it is. So I think there's there's a dual responsibility. Us as individuals, we need to prioritise self-care. That's incredibly important. But also when we think about the culture of schools and educational settings, it's the things that we can do to remind people that help is available if needed. Um, through my consultancy work, through Mind Work Matters, I often go into schools and undertake audits for mental health and well-being. And the first thing that I want to do is to take a well-being walk around the school. So I want to pick up on the atmosphere of the school. I'm mindful of how I'm greeted when I first arrive into the school, how people are talking to each other, um, looking at the visual reminders that well-being is placed at the heart of that school. That's something I'm looking for as well. But I think the areas that we need to concentrate on both as, as an organisation and as an individual is what is the offer for physical health? As a, as a nation, we are spending more time than ever sitting on our bottoms. Mm -hmm. The thing that we often turn to when we're feeling stressed to try and suppress those emotions is often unhealthy habits. So it could be food that mm -hmm. could be used to, to suppress emotions alcohol, um, unhealthy relationships. And what we what we have that's free to us is nature. And that's often that we the thing that we don't take advantage of. So something I do every single day is go out for a 10 minute walk, connecting with nature. 
I don't take my phone with me because even if you're listening to a podcast and, and I'm really hoping that many people listen to this podcast, sometimes what that creates is what I call stinking thinking. So it bursts ideas into our mind of things that we need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really important to, to be present, to connect with nature, to take time outside and maybe flip the narrative on exercise to physical activity, doing the things that bring you joy. And on an organisational level, this could be done by offering a well-being menu that's aligned to the interest of staff, so asking staff what they would want to be offered. You'll have people in educational settings who are really fantastic runners and they may want to set up a running club. Um, you may have people working in education who love dance. That's my well-being pathway, disco dancing. Um, but just it's just trying to think about what are the things that you do when you're feeling great and asking yourself honestly have you been doing much of that lately yeah and I think that that's really interesting to to reflect on on that exact topic there when you are feeling great what are the things that you're doing because often um, we stop doing those things because we think we don't need to do it anymore because we're feeling great and actually, it's the very things that we are constantly doing that make us feel great, that you can't just do them and tick them off and think, well, that's okay. No, I don't have to. We then start to sometimes slip back down into those kind of into those bad habits and then start to feel not as great anymore. Um, and, and gradually, sometimes you don't see that gradual change. But actually, then when you stop and think, hang on, what was I doing when I felt actually, you know, really on it and really top of the world? Well, I was doing this and this and this. I haven't done that for a few weeks. Right. So let's get back to some of those things. So, yeah, I think that's really important. And I think from a, a school leader's point of view, thinking about, you know, how can we prioritize the well-being of our uh, of, of our adults in our building so that they can flourish to enable our students to flourish. And I liked what you said as well about, you know, walking around the school and seeing, you know, what does it feel like? And does it feel like a fraught environment? Does it feel like people are running on empty? Does it feel like somewhere that actually people are flourishing and thriving and feeling at top of their game? Or actually, is it something very, very different? And I think that that's an interesting practical activity for school leaders to do. Uh, just to, you know, to, to, and I think that one of the leaders I work with talks about kind of what do you feel, what do you see, what do you hear? You know, actually, it's 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 using all those senses, isn't it? That actually, yes, my eyes might look around and think, well, it's quite calm, but actually, what are my ears, you know, saying? Or even my ears might say it's quite calm, but actually, what's the body language of the staff? Actually, well, my eyes are telling me that's not that's not connecting with what I'm hearing or what am I feeling. So, I do think that's really useful to do, and I think that's whether you are a a school leader or a trust leader, or whether you're just looking about it from your own department, actually, what does it look like in your own team? And if we could all resolve well-being in our own teams, then collectively we would probably resolve it across an organisation as well. So I think everyone has a responsibility there. Um, so talking about responsibility, and you, you've touched on it in terms of a bit of personal responsibility, but we've been talking about kind of schools there and school leaders and, and, and systems. But I, I presume, and you, you've highlighted already, that us ourselves as professionals, we've also got a big part to play here in how we take a personal responsibility in managing our own well-being rather than just hoping that the system's going to kind of do it for us and around us. So how can school professionals go about prioritising their own well-being? And have you got some concrete examples or, or small steps that you can give our listeners to help with this? Because I think that sometimes if someone is in a rut or is feeling very difficult, actually, it, it's sometimes too much of a big step to think, well, how do I get from, you know, A to Z? Well, actually, there are small steps that people can take. And I, I know you referenced there about going out for walks. But so thinking about personal professionals, now, sorry, personal responsibility professionals, what do we need to be doing, Kelly, with this to, to actually make a big difference to ourselves? Um, the first message that I want to give loud and clear to the audience is, it's okay not to be okay. 
um, but it's not okay to stay not okay for a long period of time. Our emotions fluctuate from time to time. And um, we have a mixture of emotions as well. Our basic emotions are like the primary colors of a palette. Uh, but when we mix those colors together, we have a, a whole host of different emotions and prioritizing well-being is absolutely crucial for leading a healthy and fulfilling life. I think the first step is to, to recognize self-awareness that's really important. So taking time to reflect on your emotions. So having those regular check-ins with yourself, taking your emotional temperature and looking at your thoughts, feelings and behaviours and how your body holds emotions. Now, I work with many educators as a consultant who often tell me that they suffer with skin disorders, IBS. There's that real correlation between the gut and the brain and sleep deficiencies as well. Something that we don't talk a lot about that I think we need to highlight is sleep education, mm -hmm. not just for children and young people, but also for educators, creating a sleep-inducing environment. If we are sleep-deprived, we are more likely to experience anxiety and stress. And, and this leads into self-care, and I spoke about this earlier, and something I created um, from a need of educators was my seven pillars of self-care training program. Um, and it, it creates a reflective space, a pause moment, I call these, just to pause. It's like pressing pause mm. on the old-fashioned video recorders to consider how we actively prioritise self-care into everyday life. And it focuses on how we rest, eat, move, sleep, learn, connect and reflect and it looks at mental self-care, emotional self-care, physical self-care, environmental self-care, spiritual self-care, recreational self-care and social self-care. A question that I often ask educators, and I'd love to ask you this question, John, why did you get into teaching? Why are you working as an educator? It's really interesting, isn't it, to reflect and going back all those years. And I think for me, it was I wanted to I wanted to feel like I was making a difference to people and and interestingly I listened to a podcast a, a, a few years ago that stuck with me about kind of what is your infinite purpose and I think that that ring rung true to me in terms of my infinite purpose is that irrespective of whether it's now an adult a school a, a parent or, or or a child I want to try and make a positive difference to that to that person or, or that organization to try and bring about some change so that they can be the best version of them that they can be. Um, so that that's ultimately why I came into, in, into teaching. And most educators will answer similarly. They will say, because I want to make a difference. Now let's consider the current landscape of education. Are, as educators, are we feel like we're truly making a difference when there's so much change and uncertainty and unknown in the world? So when we think about those societal issues, and I think this is where... Um, the scales have tipped. Educators have forgot their purpose. And something I often talk about is the ikigai. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the ikigai is our reason for being. And it looks at that if we do something that we love. So what do you love doing in relation to your job? Well, m making a difference, working with people, building those relationships and actually, you know, I suppose, yeah, building those relationships and working with people to make them better. And that feeds into something that the world needs. The world needs educators to prepare our future generation 
for the world of the future. So thinking about how AI and its integration into the world, the jobs of the future, we don't even know what those jobs are going to be, but we know that many jobs that are in the here and now are not going to be there for young people uh, to, to recruit into. And then also, if you get paid to do your job, which I'm hoping every educator does, and you're good at it, and I know you're absolutely brilliant at your job, that's when you have your guy. But we must be mindful that our guy changes. So I tend to undertake um, that process every two years to look at my why. But I think if educators can reconnect to their why, gather that sense of self-awareness, which feeds into the why, prioritise self-care, and most importantly, set boundaries. We, we're not very good at setting boundaries for ourselves. And, and I wonder how many people who are currently experiencing workplace stress, how much of that stress is put on themselves by their own expectations? Often our desires for perfection get in the way of being good enough. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that sets us up to fail. So from a leadership point of view, if we can continuously offer both professional development and personal development and help people recognize their stress signatures and give them coping strategies to manage stress. So thinking about um, reducing workload, looking at the things that are high priority, but have a low impact on outcomes and focusing on the things that may be a low priority but could have a high impact, um, I think that's incredibly important. So it's all about sharing knowledge, helping people understand themselves in the world that they live in and building that social scaffolding and support system that cultivates relationships um, and offers an open culture where people can, can access help if they need it. And learning around time management, organisation skills, that continuous learning and growth is certainly going to feed into supporting the mental health and well-being of staff. Great. A couple of things I want to pick up on there, Kelly, that you mentioned, just to kind of pull out maybe some practical kind of examples for people. So one of the first things you mentioned was having a regular like self-check-in with yourself about kind of that. So, And for some people, that might feel... A bit strange, or a bit, you know, do I have to stand in front of a mirror and talk to myself? You know, what 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 does that kind of what does that look or feel like in terms of that? And then, secondly, um, you mentioned just very very briefly there about understanding and identifying stress signatures. So, actually, if we can kind of put those both together, what what does that check in look like, and what should people be looking for in terms of their own stress signs or stress signatures? I think the first thing is acceptance of all emotions. We're not going to feel great all the time, and we're not going to be happy all the time. Um, I had a wonderful conversation with my husband. We was walking through Greenwich Park um, and I said to him, oh, it's Sunday. And you start to get that sometimes that Sunday evening, afternoon dread. You can start thinking about Monday on Sunday morning. And my husband, I'm, I'm obviously rubbing off on him. He's a very practical person. He's a black and white thinker. Um, and I'm very much a grey thinker. And he said, but Kelly, without... The, the stress of the week or the business of the week, we wouldn't appreciate the weekends. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you're exactly right. You, We need to have the dark to appreciate the light. Mm -hmm. um, but part of that as well is understanding our sense of self. So what I often do is I don't look in the mirror. That's not something I would feel comfortable doing. But I ask myself, as soon as I wake up in the morning, rather than reaching for my phone, because that's what we do, don't we? We reach yeah. for our phone and we, we check in with the digital world. I ask myself, how am I feeling today, right now? And how do I want to feel at the end of the day? And what can I do to make that happen? Mm -hmm. So it may be that I'm waking up and feeling a little anxious 
about the day ahead. But what I want to feel is a sense of peace and calm and balance by the end of the day. So what can I do to make that happen? So sometimes just that initial check-in in the morning and check out at the end of the day. So before I go to bed, I always think about the one golden moment in my day. What's been the thing that's been really good? And that's the thing that I go to bed thinking about. Um, because we need to get better at being grateful for what I call those micro moments of joy, the micro joy in life. Um, and I find that really helpful. And I am mindful of toxic positivity. I'm not that person. Uh, but I do believe that if we can, if we can simplify life, if we can concentrate on celebrating the small wins and looking at our habits, the things that we do, are they helpful or are they harmful to us? And simply asking yourself that question, is what I'm about to do helpful or harmful to me, helpful and harmful to our students, helpful and harmful to my colleagues, family? That's just a moment, a pause moment that makes you stop, reflect and think. Perfect. I really like that. And I think that's really useful for, for everyone listening to have those really practical, easy to do, very quick questions that as, as a daily routine. I think that's great. Um, kind of, I mentioned as well about those stress signatures. How, how do people kind of understand then what they're, so how should I or how should anybody listening understand what their stress signatures are? You know, what are the things that we should look for or, or how, how should we identify those? Because I think that I wonder how many people listening now would immediately be able to identify those or whether people would say, oh, what are mine? I don't know if I have any or what. So how would how would someone go about understanding that so that when those things happen, they can then go, oh, okay, I'm now feeling in a state of stress. Therefore, I would like to do something different. So how would we go about doing that? I think we need to consider the known stresses, the known stresses that we know that we experience. So the triggers for stress and the unknown stressors. So those are the things that other people may notice that we get stressed around, but we might notice ourselves. So I think it's initially, I always undertake the stress bucket activity. So I think about what am I carrying in my stress bucket right now? So it may be that I'm looking after an elderly parent whilst trying to hold down a job or managing childcare and holding down a job. It may be that I have some financial well-being concerns. I'm worried about finances. It could be that you're worried about workload. So then you're slipping into that avoiding of managing your workload. So the first thing we need to consider is what are the things that we know that are bringing us stress? And then within that stress bucket, asking others, when when you perceive that I'm stressed, what does that look like in my behavior? So then you're gathering information about those unknown stressors. Um, so it may be something that's non-verbal. It may be a habit that you do. It may be that you start to bite your nails or pull on your hair, or you may become avoidant when usually you're very sociable. So gathering that information, that's the first step. The next step is to understand what does that look and feel like in my mind and in my body? So when I'm stressed, um, I will avoid meeting up with friends. Um, also, I'll have tummy issues I have lots of headaches stress headaches I'll not be able to sleep my eating patterns change then you're gathering information around the symptoms of stress and then it's considering how do you empty that stress bucket before it overflows with all of those symptoms so for me the thing I often avoid doing is reaching out to others so I become very insular and tend to go into my shell like a turtle when I'm stressed but the thing I need to help me is to connect with others connect with others who energize me, who vibrate on the same energy vibes as me. Um, 
And that's that's something that I don't do. But just knowing that, that that's part of your turning the tap on and releasing some of that pressure sometimes helps you to create that actionable step. And it's a solution for managing stress. But it's a very individual activity. So step one, be become aware of what stress looks like for, for you or what you're holding on to from your point of view and from others, what it looks like in your behaviour symptoms, both emotionally and physically, and what can be your stress releases. I think that's really important for people to use the, the, that three-step process. I think that's, that's fantastic. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, so finally, then, I want to ask you, and this is, I know we've you and I have spoken about this before, but um, so many people relate to something in life called imposter syndrome. And I know you've talked about it before, and we've had a chat about it before. So what's your thoughts on how this impacts teaching? And do you have any practical tips to help teachers and leaders overcome this? Because I'm sure many people now will be nodding and going, yeah, I get this all the time, or I feel this, or, oh, wow, yeah, I think I feel this. Do other people feel this as well? So what is it? How do you kind of deal with it? And what what tips have you got for teachers in terms of how, how it would impact teaching? Another important message for anyone who is experiencing imposter syndrome, you are not alone. Um, so please don't feel isolated with that. So just to give um, some clarity, firstly, on what imposter syndrome is, um, it can have a significant impact for educators. And it's when you feel that sense of self-doubt, um, you feel like you're not good enough, you feel like you're a fraud, someone's going to find out I shouldn't be doing this job, I'm just winning it. It's that feeling. And what you tend to do is you tend to overcompensate the feeling of not being good enough. So you over prepare work, you overthink solutions, um, and that becomes part of a habitual habit that's really unhealthy. We know that imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon where individuals doubt their accomplishments and have a persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. Um, and despite evidence of their competence, um, they always still feel like this. So it could be that you set a goal, you achieve that goal and you still feel it's not good enough. So then you put another goal in place. Um, so educators or anyone who's experiencing imposter syndrome um, will doubt their teaching abilities if we focus on educators. They will question whether they're truly qualified um, within their teaching roles. And this self-doubt can undermine their confidence and impact the effectiveness of their teachers teaching and also it's that fear of evaluation so teachers who experience imposter syndrome may be feeling feared um, by peers or other people in the community and this will contribute to their anxiety and stress they may also be hesitant to ask for help um, and they have a real need, as I said before, around perfectionism. So setting those unrealistic high standards for themselves. And often this leads to burnout, John. And that's the worrying thing as they strive for un unattainable levels of perfection in their teaching. And some educators as well may have that avoidance of leadership roles. So they may be offered opportunities for leadership but they may avoid taking on these leadership roles or participating in professional development opportunities, believing they're not qualified or capable. And this can impact their career growth and also potentially impact on their educational experience. So I think it's really important to understand how imposter syndrome can also affect relationships. So relationships with students and relationships uh, with colleagues as well. Um, and these people who experience imposter syndrome may find it hard to handle criticism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I've had to work on a lot myself from, from a personal point of view. I now see feedback as an opportunity for growth rather than an insult. So I get quite excited if I was to get a piece of feedback that was perceived as being negative because I see that as an opportunity for improvement. But I also have to be mindful that experiencing imposter syndrome, you do have that desire for perfection Mm. and a byproduct. So a coping mechanism for imposter syndrome is avoidance. I don't know if you know that. So you tend to leave things to the very last minute because if it's not quite good enough, it's because you've left it to the last minute. That's interesting, that isn't it? And I, and I, I suppose you've talked a lot about kind of the word teachers there, but I suppose the imposter syndrome probably kicks in even more for leaders and school leaders because actually the responsibility and the onus of kind of being that that one person sometimes. And actually, am I good enough to do this? And am I the right? And you know, am I qualified? Am I the right person? Should I be doing this job? You know, how how come I'm doing this? I presume that that is there as well. And um, something we've talked about before. Hopefully, you'll be able to share this in terms of what, how do you personally kind of cope with that? I know you've got a, a great kind of mechanism of, of kind of how you how you've almost uh, well, I won't I won't steal your thunder, but how, what you've done to kind of give your give your imposter syndrome almost a a, a, a personality. So, do you, can you if you can share that with us? I think that's really great that because people might be listening saying yes i have all those things you've mentioned but actually when that kicks in in my head what do i do you know in that moment either in front of the class in front of the assembly in front of the governors in front of the staff meeting when that starts to happen those doubts creep in how do you deal with it kelly yeah i think overcoming imposter syndrome is a gradual process and it involves building that sense of self-awareness and challenging negative thought patterns and developing a positive mindset. So what I did, I quickly recognised that my imposter was an internal voice. Uh, My imposter was my inner child trying to protect me. So I understood where that behaviour come from, from my backstory. I understood why I felt that I needed that protection. So I gave, the first thing I did was give my imposter their own identity. So I gave them a name. So my imposter's called Bob. (laughs) <laughs> and Bob will often talk to me, especially if I'm looking in the mirror and he go, oh, I don't like that dress or, oh, that doesn't look right. Or your makeup's not not great today. And I say, and all I simply say is I have a script. Thanks for sharing, Bob. And that's literally all I say. Now, people who have worked with me uh, will know that I often walk a- around corridors in schools and they just hear me say randomly, thanks for sharing. And that's Bob talking to me. Often he'll make me feel fearful about presenting so just before I'm about to present uh, the anxiety creeps in and that never goes away whether you're presenting to an audience of two people or a thousand people because it's so meaningful for me and that message that I'm delivering is so important Bob often pops up and says wow are you going to be able to do this is this going to be good enough is everyone going to receive the information that you're giving them so I say thanks for sharing so essentially what I'm highlighting is that Bob, it's great that you're there to protect me, but actually I'm an adult and I I can make my own decisions. So sometimes just acknowledging the imposter within and understanding where that comes from as a protective factor can be helpful in managing it. The thing is, if we don't, what we're essentially doing, it's like having a beach ball in your hand and being in the sea. And I don't know if you've ever done this. And you try and push the beach ball under the water yeah. and it's it's heavy isn't it it's it is. really hard to, to push under and I love a bit of aquafit so I'm often pushing the weights under the water now 
if we let go of that ball, what happens? Yeah, it comes back up with a lot more force, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it usually whacks you in the face, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> and and then you get water in, and if there's people around you, they're going to be splashed too, and it affects. So it not only affects you, it affects people around you. So what I tend to do is ride the waves of the imposter. So I just glide the ball gently across the water without trying to suppress it. I think with with imposter syndrome, the key, the magical ingredients is we need to express rather than suppress. And it's okay to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable is really brave. When I when I get up on the stage and talk to people and I make sure that I'm always my true self and I say, do you know what? I'm a bit like my mic. People either love me or they hate me and that's absolutely okay. So getting comfortable with the un- uncomfortable um, and getting comfortable with, with that stretch is incredibly important. So the steps are acknowledge and understand imposter cultivate self-awareness set realistic goals goals that you would set for other people check in with those goals would you set the goals you set for yourself with other people talk about it openly um, and change negative self-talk um so i have a happiness file and what i do is in that file on my laptop i store all the things that i'm really proud of and if i'm having a wobble moment I'll look at that file and remind myself of how far I've come. Um, and I give myself a pat on the back and that's okay to do that. Perfect. That, that That's lovely. So thank you for sharing that. And it's interesting that I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but I, I, I bumped into a former student of mine who's a, a Premier League footballer uh, a while back, maybe like four or five weeks ago. And he was talking to me about actually uh, imposter syndrome and how it's, how it's, it's really, you know, it's real, especially in the Premier League and actually the pressure and I, I shared your 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 tip with him, and he was like, "Oh wow, I'm going to use that. That's really great." So actually, it's not just teaching; it's not just you know, it's it, it's at every level, and actually, those things can really work and can allow you to then identify it, understand it, deal with it, and put Bob back in his kind of cage for a little bit to say, "Thank you very much. Uh, I'm a grown adult. I can deal with this myself." But thanks, thanks for sharing your opinion. So I do think that's a really useful technique for everyone. So we've come to the end of our our, our chat. So I just want to say a massive thank you, Kelly, for sharing so many kind of um, golden nuggets uh, and practical tips for people today. Who in in, a, in all walks of education, it doesn't you know this isn't about if you are struggling, this is for everyone because we, we, we want to be able to keep on top of it and be proactive. Um, if people want to uh, find you uh, on social media, look at the rest of your work and, and connect with you, uh, Kelly, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on my website. So that's www.mindworkmatters.com. You can also find me on social media. Uh, please do give us a follow. I share lots of resources, tips and insights. Um, you can find me on Twitter at mindworkmatters on Instagram at mind underscore work underscore matters. And you can also find me um, on LinkedIn under my name, Kelly Hannigan. Um, It'd be great to connect with you. I offer a a whole range of support services for all stakeholders, um, not just within education, but also within organisations as well. And I think what's really important right now is that sense of collective togetherness in a world where there is so many uncertainties and challenges, um, it's really important that we come together to find the solutions, to be able to have a peaceful life. That's so important. And to create the balance between both work life and home life. And, and I can certainly help you with that. 
Absolutely. Well, just a massive thank you once again. Um, hopefully people reach out and connect with you. And um, yeah, hopefully everyone should be able to take at least a few things away to, for their wellbeing toolbox, their personal wellbeing toolbox, their school wellbeing toolbox, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, just a huge thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast, John. Thanks for listening to the Northern Lights Teacher School Hub podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to some more fantastic guests. But in the meantime, if you want to know more about the support, services and courses that Northern Lights Teaching School Hub offers, head over to northernlights.education and click on the Teaching School Hub tile. Until then, take care.